Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Duncan Chapman, a composer, sound artist, and musician based in Lincolnshire in the United Kingdom. Much of Duncan's work involves performance, installation, and recording collaborations with individuals across a wide range of disciplines in and outside of music. There were a dozen or more projects I hoped to speak with Duncan about, and we only got to a few. Two works we did explore in some depth are his Sound Marks of Northeast Lincolnshire and The Sound of Rhubarb, both of which I hope you'll make time to explore. Please visit duncanchapman.org, which we will also link to from the episode notes. There you can learn about and listen to much more of Duncan's unique and fascinating body of work. Enjoy. I admire a man with a prodigious beard. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> that could be to do with COVID lockdowns, you know, or our bee, because we keep bees, our bees expanded enormously, my beard grew, and the chainsaw came out to chop wood up. So it's like dealing with what's in front of you, really. You've but, gotten yeah. very rustic, yeah. That's amazing. Absolutely, yes. Well, there's so much to talk about with you and so many projects to to learn about and unpack. So I hope you'll bear with me as we bounce around through time and through projects and through concepts. But it really was, I have to say, a bit of a struggle to uh, determine the entry point because every time I investigated a new thing that you were doing or a new collaboration you were involved with, I would go down that rabbit hole and say, wow, I could spend an hour just... (laughs) <laughs> just talking about this. <laughs> well, I think some of it I, I struggle with having to do, as lots of artists do, having to write biographies because I, I suppose I've always been driven by curiosity. It's like, oh, that's interesting. I'll investigate that, you know, and I'll go for that. And then, and also that feeling of wanting to do everything in a way or being interested in a really wide, although I'm a musician, you know, I've always been interested in a really wide range of music. And even from when I was very young, singing in a church choir and having piano lessons, I was interested in pulling the piano to pieces and finding (laughs) out what strange noises I could get from the inside of it. And they never seemed to be in conflict to me. And I, I, I struggled and still do with, I suppose, to understand why the sort of mindset that says, well, if you play in a rock band, you can't be in an orchestra. I'm thinking, well... I want to do both. I like the energy of that, and I like the beauty of that, and I want to engage with all of it, really. So, before we talk about your work itself, what what was your music growing up? Were you a were you a rock fan, or were you uh, listening to the sounds of train tracks and and finding the meter in them? Or <laughs> well, it was kind of curious, really, because I grew up in a very sort of ordinary. English childhood. I grew up in on the Wirral near near Liverpool. 
I suppose I had piano lessons and I sang in a choir and learnt the recorder at school. But I remember discovering music and thinking, wow, this is fantastic. I like this so much I want to do it every day. And I didn't really enjoy the sort of formal education I had, even though I sort of went through with it, I suppose. I'm always very wary of saying some of these things because it's probably not good advice. But I discovered that from in the grammar school I went to, that I could play truant and I could go to the art college in Birkenhead, which is the town opposite Liverpool, on the other side of the River Mersey, where you get the famous ferry across the Mersey to. I discovered this man in the art college who who sat, who had a room full of what are now classic analogue synthesizers and the insides of pianos and things. And his job was to do interesting art music things with art students. But he also wrote string quartets and conducted an operatic society And that was a huge inspiration. You're thinking, I like singing in the church choir and I like having my piano lessons and all those kind of things, but I could do all these other things with music. So I sort of got very interested in that. I suppose I diverged from a very traditional musical upbringing into, it was in the sort of late 70s, early 1980s, and I was quite close to Liverpool and so when John Cage, Merce Cunningham Dance Company were playing in Liverpool, I thought, oh, I'll go and have a look at this. And I went and discovered a lot of those things, which became quite significant, I think. To tie back to something you said a moment ago about following your curiosity, that certainly comes across in the the sort of breadth and diversity of the projects that that I looked at, at least. And Something else that struck me was there seems to be almost like a multidisciplinary approach to some of your collaborators. Like there's, it's not, I hope you'll, you'll correct me if I'm, if I'm articulating it wrong, but it's not just musical collaborators. It seems like you collaborate with thinkers and academics and. um, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, And can you tell me about that a little bit about, first of all, the nature of collaboration in your work, because so much of your work does seem to be with other people. And then this idea of not limiting it just to another artist or music. The nature of collaboration, I think, I think you make a decision if you think, I, I love music, you know, I like playing it, but I want to make my own. And other people talk about this in a much more eloquent way than I do. But the idea that music is a solitary activity is quite, well, it's been around for quite a long time. And I make quite a lot of music by myself, but I quite like people, you know. It's as simple as that, you know. So that idea of collaborating with people, and I was always interested in, I used to do a lot of photography, actually. I left school at 16 and went to the, I went to art college and I studied music at art college. And I also studied photography and visual art and things like that. And what struck me about some of those things is that the educational processes of visual artists seemed a lot more exciting than music in a way. So when I started doing photography at art college, the process consisted of learning how to load film into a cassette, learning how to load a camera, and then being told to go away and take as many pictures as you like. And music education was never like that. It was always a bit about, here is music, and if you're good enough, you can become adequate, you know? <laughs> so, so, and then I, I suppose... 
the idea of the discreteness of subjects, for want of a better, it's not very well put, but the idea that music is somehow separate from perception in other ways. And I wouldn't necessarily think it is. I'm kind of interested in the ideas of the world, which so much of my work now involves working with the sounds of the environment and just thinking about those and and how anything we might do exists within that context. So then it sort of draws you to sort of hang out with people who think about those things in different ways. And music is, by its nature, a collaborative art. Even if you're a soloist, there's the, there's the person who tunes your piano and there's the person who engineers your recording, and those people are, have a real creative stance as well. Well, not stance necessarily, but they really have a creative input into what you do. It's like being interested in quite a lot of the time in all of it, and then the opportunity some of the time to spend time with people who really, really have studied things in great depth. Quite a long time ago, I did a project with an astronomer from Cambridge University, Carolyn Crawford, who is an X-ray astronomer, but she's a world authority on sound in the universe. It's like, here's a person who's, who is colossally intelligent, who can explain about pulsars and about the whole thing about the universe and time and the transmissions of energy and all those kind of things. And it's just like, it's just a gift to be able to spend time with people, I think, who can put a different perspective on it, I think. So. Yeah. Hearing you describe that situation and that individual in particular, that sounds like a musical collaborator. I mean, it's just a different, it's just a different source of sound. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's, she gave me lots of recordings, you know, of things. And there's this whole thing of sound in space because everyone assumes there's no sound in space because there's no atmosphere, but there is, there's energy in, and, it, and it does travel very slowly. And I mean, the most, I suppose, telling one, she gave me this recording of the Cassini space probe flying through Saturn's rings. There aren't really microphones on these, but there are sensors that are working the same way as microphones. And there's that thing about the sound of this. Sounds like you're dropping rice onto a biscuit tin, but when you know how far it's come, it's incredible, you know, it's the idea of provenance and place and it's, and you can hear the shape of Saturn's rings. And I'm no astronomer, I'm no expert on that. But the sound starts like these little droplets, like a rainstorm starting, and then it builds up intensity as it travels. So things like that become really powerful ideas, but also for me working often with a lot of people, students and young people and different people, it's a really powerful, not metaphor, it's a really powerful thing in the universe to think this is a sound that has travelled all this distance and in its envelope, in its shape and its crescendo and diminuendo, it indicates something about this planet that's so far away it's inconceivable. And that's just like as inspiring in lots of ways of going to hear fantastic musicians perform, you know. It's even more fundamentally true than a metaphor. Like there's something, it's profound. It's, it's not, it's, it's, it's yeah, I yeah, think, nothing yeah. short of profound. Yeah. That's amazing. But I think a lot of the other things I'm involved in, I suppose, now are to do with some of the time finding this beauty in the everyday sometimes. There's a very, fa well, a very famous John Cage quote. He said that beauty is underfoot wherever we take the trouble to look, which I think is... 
really quite telling in a way. It's like you can find these things in unexpected places. And some of the time the role of the artist is to frame them or to draw attention to them because you don't notice them because they're there. I think that brings us nicely into what does seem to be like a meta narrative or a meta theme across some of the projects I looked at. And that, and I think a lot of them fall into the realm of what I think you call the sound marks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very curious about, there's a lot I'm curious about actually in relation to this, (laughs) Um, but some of it's technical and maybe like process oriented. And I don't know if you have the, if you're, if you're inclined to go there, but I might ask you a couple of questions about process, but this idea of capturing the sound of a place and the sort of ambiance of a place. What is it about that that speaks to you? Like, what what do you hear that I don't hear when we walk down the street together? Well, I think there's a difference also between hearing and listening, that listening is different to hearing. But what I find interesting is, is difference, you know? As I've got older and been able to travel, when you travel to a country that's a long way away, it's very different to where you live you notice all these things the first time you get there. I remember the first time I went to Japan and you get off the aeroplane, the temperature is different, the texture of the air is different, it smells different, it feels different. You have this heightened sense of awareness of how it sounds and the combination of things. And it very quickly wears off, though, You even somewhere that's very, very different. I'm kind of interested in trying to recapture that noticing thing Because the thing I've noticed as well myself is that the things you might grow up with as the everyday things to other people are can be really extraordinary, but you don't notice because they're there all the time. And to me, that idea of finding these things in the everyday and drawing attention to them says something about where we live, but also as as the world gets more and more the same in lots of ways, if you travel, you find the same shops, the same hamburger restaurants, yeah. you know, all those things are the same. But sometimes there's an essence of difference, which isn't dividing people necessarily, but it's about the idea of uniqueness, the thing that is where is it that you can only find there. And it's a bit like, like a lot of musicians, um, a bit obsessed with food. It's a sort of an abiding thing of musicians and people who travel. I have friends who play in orchestras who travel a lot. And you say, how was the tour of wherever? How was your tour of Southeast Asia? And they go, oh, it's brilliant. Have you tried this type of noodles? And it's, I mean, they'll talk about it. It's very true, actually. Yeah, Yeah. it's very true. Someone who speaks to a lot of artists, most people seem to travel the world by their stomach. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I think some of the time, because you have sort of random times between things, you get tired of eating sandwiches, actually. That's the thing, isn't it? So, but anyway, those things, you know, finding those things that have a, an essence. And often I'm struck by how they're often different to what we might imagine. I mean, Murray Schaefer, the Canadian inventor of soundscape studies, really, talks about this quite a lot. And this is, there's a thing that we, we assume that a place sounds a particular way because we look at it when we actually take the trouble to listen, we often find some very different things. So a good example recently for me, I've been doing this project up the road, not very far away from where I live, which is a mixture of industrial and rural communities, very close together, close to a big estuary, Humber estuary, and a big port. 
and and the defining sound for a lot of those people is the the testing of the of the emergency sirens in the oil refinery every Thursday morning at eight o'clock. And it's this beautiful drone actually that drifts across the landscape. And in a sense, it has a power for the people who live there because if it went off at a different time, it's a big deal for the oil refinery to go wrong, obviously. And it, but it's a sense of security, but a sense of identity of place. So for me, I find that quite captivating. And the other one that's quite local to me, I think which you've probably seen or heard, is this rhubarb growing stuff I've been working with in Yorkshire which is kind of crazy, but sort of eccentrically fascinating. <laughs> well, all right, let me let me let me pause you there for a moment. Let me before we before we get into rhubarb, okay? <laughs> because that's on my list. Um, uh, it usually is, actually. Yeah. Are you the rhubarb man? Well, not really. <laughs> I mean, we do have some rhubarb growing in my garden. <laughs> is what you were speaking about a moment ago with the oil refineries? Was that I, I want to make sure I say it correctly? Is that Lincolnshire? Yeah, it's northeast Lincolnshire. Something that struck me when I was watching that, the short film you made or the video you made was, well, actually, before I say that, I want to ask you, is part, something that comes through when you talk about the differences and you talk about the meaningfulness in these differences and the recognizing them and the trying to recapture that, it also, it strikes me that that's where the the empathy lies. That's how we're reminded that while something might be other, it also has its own humanity it has its own experience and if we can connect with that that's sort of the place that's the thing yeah absolutely absolutely that's very well put actually i would yeah the, the the sense of otherness being part of us as well i think when you said that as well i was reminded about actually what i was doing yesterday morning in london which is i'm i'm actually a trustee of an organization called liquid vibrations it does projects in swimming pools for children with severe and multiple disabilities in special schools. So it works in the field of musical hydrotherapy using underwater loudspeakers. I've been doing a a project for them where I went to work with a group of children in a special school in London, and we made some recordings of their voices and music and improvisations with instruments and things. And then yesterday I went back to the school, and while they were floating around, blissed out in this warm, shallow swimming pool with staff floating around, they could hear the music that they'd made two weeks ago underwater through underwater loudspeakers. Doing it with those people is interesting because a lot of those children are nonverbal. They don't yeah. use words. They don't use conventional language. But the, the sense of connectedness to it is really strong. So it's like recognizing yourself. And for me that, you know, in a world where it, when I moved house six years ago, I realized I do have enough cassettes and LPs and CDs and hard drives and things full of sound recordings and music. I've probably got enough to last the rest of my life. I've got hours and hours, weeks and weeks of the stuff. I'm always thinking, if I'm going to make something new, how does it speak? Is it just adding to the heap of recordings that exist in the world? But what really struck me yesterday was a really profoundly as well and much more intense with those people sense of this really matters because this is me and I recognize myself. And I'm actually able to relax in this environment of floating when actually sitting is really uncomfortable. I might have a disability that makes movement problematic and things. 
So in a sense, in my head, that's all part of the same kind of trajectory in terms of specialness of the sound. So as the technologies for making these things have increased, there's a tendency for them to become less specific. Piano is a button on the computer, and it do they all sound the same or different? And if I'm using a computer, how do I make that something different, you know? And how does when you sing sound different to when you, someone else sings? And all, all that kind of pursuing that, not as an extra, really. I suppose for me, that was always considered in musical composition. It's like the idea you inject the personality at the end. You sort of make the music and then you hopefully it gains personality. So I'm interested in doing it the other way around, in a sense. What's the special bit about it and how do we make more of that? A lot in there resonates with me. I have a, um, I have a multiple and somewhat significantly disabled child. And the way he responds to floating yeah, yeah, and the way he responds to sound is very profound, very profound. And, and the floating bit makes sense because of the things you articulated. It's just a freeing of his body. But watching him interact with sound, whether it's noises he makes or from his environment or specific music he likes, it's always, since he was very young, been incredibly fascinating and, and really enjoyable to watch him experience the world that way. I mean, yeah, I would share that 100%. It's, it sort of cuts through the crap that surrounds so much music performance, you know. Do I have to wear these clothes to go to this? Am I going to clap in the wrong place? Can I move around? Why can't I have a beer while I'm listening to this? And I can when I'm listening to that. And, you know, all those kind of codes and things that sometimes people evolve to protect their music from the barbarian hordes who are going to destroy <laughs> it. And actually, they're not really, you know. Sometimes it, you just need to find the right context, I think, for it to speak. Something I wanted to ask you that I wasn't sure if I'm bringing to it or if listeners are bringing to the experience or if it's something you've put into the presentation, which is there's certainly in the in the Lincolnshire video, it was communicating melancholy to me and not sort of an idealization of, I don't know, I guess I felt a lot of things like, is this, are we on the cusp of losing this little vignette that you uncovered and documented or what were you communicating to me or or was I just making it up actually the people I met on the process of that project I did talk a bit about endangered sounds because I've worked with that as an idea with often with students before so the idea of can you think of a sound that we've lost People start off by thinking about steam trains, but we'll never lose the sound of steam trains because people like them. People think they're important and, they'll make, and they're making new ones and all that kind of thing. It's an interesting community there, an interesting part of the world there, because Grimsby, which is the main town there, was massive fishing port for a long, long time. It was a massive, hugely important fishing port, and now it isn't. Parts of it are quite run down. Although the major industry things that go on there now are renewable energy and wind turbine manufacture. So it has a sense of being quite zeitgeisty in a sense of the world. You know, it's like we used to sail to the water around Iceland and catch fish to make into cod, to make into fish fingers and things, which is <laughs> its main industry in the 20th century. I suppose it is a bit melancholic, I think, I have. I do know other people who've done a lot of work in this idea about sound memory and sound nostalgia. And yeah, it's. I, th I think there's a sense where 
some of those things won't be there forever. In some ways, hopefully, the oil refinery won't be there forever, even though it provides a lot of employment and it means provides petrol and all those kind of things. But actually, we can't carry on having huge oil refineries in the world. It's not sustainable. So there is a bit of melancholy, I suppose, around that. I don't think I was trying to sort of capture it before it disappears kind of feel. It's not quite like that, but it was very much, there was quite a lot, a lot of nostalgia in a lot of the people I spoke with during the process. We used to hear this, but we don't hear this anymore. And that, that can be quite interesting as well, because if you think it's an interesting question to think, well, what if I go outside now and I listen, what can I hear now? In 50 years' time, what will still be there and what will have gone? Will it have changed? I was doing a recording a few weeks ago with a, with a group of old, retired people on a, in a garden project in, in a part of Yorkshire, and it's to do with the performance that I'm working on that's about the experience of drought and water change, and it involves some people in India and some people in the UK as well, thinking about how places that have had a lot of flooding and places that used to be able to grow things in, you can't anymore. Yeah. It was interesting talking to older people saying, oh, we've got, oh, I, I don't know anything about that. No, oh, but I tell you, you can't grow this anymore in the in my garden. All my tomato plants fail. Obviously, we had an, in Europe, we had an exceptionally hot summer, brief period of outrageously hot summer this year, which is very unusual. But I think the sound... It would be interesting to go back in 20 years. I mean, that's the thing I should do, really, go back in 20 years' time and track the same people down and just notice how it's changed, maybe. Yeah. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. Is there a sound that's been lost that you wish you could have heard? Is there something you ever think that you would have loved to have heard the sound of? Um... I'm trying to think. I would probably. That's quite a tricky one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite nice. I like that. Yeah. Um, I think there are sounds in. I'm not sure that it's lost. I've been trying for a long time and I haven't managed yet to record in some of the islands off the northwest coast of Scotland. They have singing sounds like there are in the Gobi Desert as well. So they're kind of sand on the beach that gets air trapped in. And as you move, if you walk across it, it makes this sort of groaning, sort of ghostly sounds. For me, that's something that I haven't managed to get to. I think it's still there, but I think it's a bit fragile in a sense. There's probably that, that sort of natural phenomena. And there are things, I suppose, things I wish I'd, I'd heard that I missed. But they tend to, you know, they could be music performances and things. And you, you think, oh, I decided not to go to that, and I should have done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but I think everyone has that. Oh, no, I should have gone to see that person play, and I didn't. All right. We have to talk about rhubarb. <laughs> Let's have the rhubarb conversation. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, the rhubarb conversation. <laughs> Just for the benefit of, of listeners, could you introduce the sound of rhubarb <laughs> could you tell us what the sound of rhubarb is as a project well so the sound of rhubarb is is a again actually we started off by talking about curiosity and uniqueness and things but for many years we lived in lincoln in lincolnshire most of lincolnshire is very flat actually the part i live in isn't tremendously flat but we lived in lincoln the city 
And because there are no tall places between it, we used to get television from Yorkshire. And every sort of January, February, you'd have on the early evening news programmes these interesting little snippets about the locality. I'm, that happens all over the world, you know. Sure. I know people in other countries, oh, they're reporting on the cicadas all coming out at the same time. Or when I've been in Scandinavia, it's when, you know, when the ice melts and you can finally, sort of, or when it freezes and you can finally skate across the sea to work, which when I was in Sweden earlier in the year, there was people skating to work in Stockholm, which was extraordinary. But every sort of beginning of the year, there'd be, there'd be these programs. I don't watch much TV, and there's a program that would be like, oh, and it's time for the rhubarb harvest in Yorkshire. So a lot of people grow. Oh, well, I like rhubarb. We've grown it in our garden. A lot of people grow it in the garden. It, it makes good crumble and pie, and it makes fantastic vodka if you steep it in vodka, which is always very good. Um, <laughs> and there'd be an item on the news, and they would usually interview these farmers, small-scale farmers, and they would say, oh, and it makes a noise as it grows. And I get, oh, that's interesting. And it would. I got slightly intrigued by this. So I tried to research it a bit, and I found out that it there's these sort of stories about how as a plant, when it grows, it makes a sound. And in that part of Yorkshire, which they which is nicknamed the Rhubarb Triangle, of course, so it's between three towns. <laughs> um, Run by cartels. <laughs> absolutely, yes. Yeah, the Rhubarb Triangle, yeah. So, um, yeah. But technique they use is that they have sheds that are totally dark, and they put the plants in the shed at the beginning of the year, and they heat it, and it grows really, really, really fast. So it grows to try and find the light. And because it grows so fast, it's very, very sweet, and it doesn't photosynthesize, so the leaves don't go green. And it's a very desirable product because it really is really delicious. You don't need to sweeten it or anything like that. And because it grows so fast, it makes this popping sound. So I got really intrigued by this. And Huddersfield, which is a town in Yorkshire that's kind of on the edge of this place, has a very big international contemporary music festival. So people come from all over the world to this kind of small town in Yorkshire. Historically, it's had a lot of, I suppose, famous composers from contemporary experiment and experimental music. So people like Stockhausen, John Cage, Luciano Berrio, Yanis Zanakis, you know, that music has been very big there. And now a lot of experimental jazz, electronic music, different things. I've always done a lot of education projects for that festival. So I've done a lot of work in education with young people, composing new music that connects to things in the festival. I always think that as an artist or as a, someone working, it's you might have an idea, but how do you actualize your idea? It's quite easy to have big ideas. I can imagine huge performances with thousands of people, you know, and I'm always struck by a friend of mine worked with the artist Christo, who's famous for wrapping up buildings, on Umbrellas in the Desert project when she was a student. And she said the thing that was most impressive about him and his wife, who worked as a team, was that he really loved going to meetings with the local authorities about making it happen, rather than thinking, well, I'm a great artist, you make it happen for me, and then I'll produce the artwork. So that whole thing about being involved in all parts of the process. So I, I, I always think about like laying an egg with people that will hatch up. You sort of bury it in the sand somewhere. A friend of mine who was in charge of these education projects in Yorkshire, I kept saying, well, can we do something with rhubarb sometime? 
So I'm really interested in this sound it makes. And I couldn't get, I couldn't find out. I could find out a bit about it in some recordings, but they were all a bit insubstantial, really. And then after a while, several years, I get an email saying, I've raised some money. We can do a rhubarb project. So I did a project for the Huddersfield Contemporary Music Festival in a primary school. So it was children between the age of sort of five and 11 that was next door to one of these farms. And it was interesting because a lot of the children in this school weren't aware that the sheds they could see out of their playground were actually where they grew this forced rhubarb in the dark. And so we recorded the rhubarb in the dark. I made a time-lapse. I left a time-lapse camera in the shed and made a movie out of it. And it makes this very quiet, super quiet, little popping noises because as it grows so fast, it splits. So it splits and it makes this quite liquid kind of popping noise. It sounds a bit like if you pop bubble wrap. I did have a conversation with a sound recordist from the BBC who remained nameless, who said, oh, we tried to record it, but it was so noisy because of background traffic noise. I did it in the studio with bubble wrap. So you could fake it if you're a Foley (laughs) artist. So it makes this sort of very quiet popping noise. And we did this project where we did some music with the sounds of the rhubarb, but also we collected recipes from parents and grandparents and people made cake. And we had like a a picnic, really, instead of a concert. And then subsequently, a visual artist friend of mine was commissioned by the Wakefield, which is the town mostly in the middle of it, the Wakefield Rhubarb Festival, to make one of these sheds where he made handmade lanterns with communities inside. And it was exploring the whole culture around this. And I made a different version for that and then subsequently it it keeps returning and, and i've just been doing some work with a colombian sound artist in another sound installation piece but what i like about it and i often use this as an example is that it's it's a sound that's unique and it's mysterious it's hard to work out what it is when you hear it you think it's an animal or it's popping something or treading on something so it's really hard to work out what it is it could only ever happen in, because that's the only place in the world they grow it like that. You can do it in your garden. We always used to use a dustbin with a brick on it. If you put the dustbin over it, it'll grow fast. You put the brick on the top because it's windy in the winter. So the rhubarb came out through that sort of curious process. And subsequently, yeah, I, I, I seem to keep returning to it periodically. I always think it's... It's finished, and then it, it'll come back in a slightly different form. Yeah, and I quite like that. I made some recordings earlier this year with much, much higher quality equipment than I had originally. So the first recordings I made were literally me and someone else in the dark, in the mud, in this shed, in the middle of the night, with a handheld portable recording machine. The ones I made earlier this year were with this Colombian sound artist, David Velas, who was doing a PhD at the university in Huddersfield. So it was a pair of DPA, if you're a sound nerd, it was a pair of DPA microphones and a sound devices recorder, which is really high-end, you know, like you'd use professional film sound recordist would use. So the quality of the sounds we got were amazing, but they're so quiet. And it's got this tantalising quality about it because it's almost not there but it is there i find it quite intriguing in a way yeah so 
the thought I like to play with when I hear you talk about this, and also similar to when you were talking about the Cassini spacecraft, I like to imagine that through your playing back of those sounds or perhaps speeding them up or slowing them down, you stumble across patterns or communication that's that's the fun thing for me to think about that the plant's calling you in some way well actually david's work is really about that communication in plants so he's yeah i mean i think that's something about people as well it's that i mean some of the other work i've done where i've made more conventional music using some of those techniques that the the human beings we have a capacity to see patterns that's part of what the brain does. You know, I go out and I look at the sky and I see the giant rabbit in the clouds. It's it's quite real in a sense. Similar to actually what I was saying about working with these special school children, it's like my role some of the time as an artist is not to interfere with the things too much, but to produce a frame around them so you can notice. Something I learned, I think, from a lot of visual artists I've worked with where they might not do very much, but they'll they'll choose to frame, find a frame for what is there. So it's not like you've got sort of golden eyes to be able to spot genius in someone's artwork, but you're just good at working out which bit of it is worth zooming in on. Or... Yeah, I was going to say, isn't that your experience with photography? I mean, that, that seems like it's exactly what you'd be doing. Yeah. yeah, very similar, actually. It's very similar. And it's funny because it's not something that in conventional music education, although I do, you see, in my practice, I do give, you know, children handheld recorders and give them a a treasure hunt of sounds to record. But conventionally, you know, when people learn about music, they already have, to me, too fixed an idea about what music is. And sometimes you can miss these wonderful sounds that could be part of your even very conventional music doesn't have to be these experimental kind of approach things you know well in the in the spirit of of education i want to ask you what i hope is not too basic of a question how do you describe the difference between noise and sound and sound and music okay that's quite an interesting one okay <laughs> so i i would say that noise is I'm not sure who who I'm quoting. It might be Murray Schaefer, but who said that noise is an unwanted sound signal. Mm. I quite like that. Yeah. So my noise could be your music, and that's a very personal thing, apart from the scientific definitions of white noise and pink noise and those things. I think the difference between sound and music is becomes very interesting, but is, is less of an issue now, in a sense. When I first started doing things, there wasn't such a thing as sound art, wasn't known as a thing. I've worked with groups of people to make things of all sorts of ages, and some of the time it would come up and say, well, this isn't, oh, this isn't really music, is it? And the people would be really struggling some of the time. And, and now if I say, well, no, it's sound art, they go, oh, great, and they carry on doing it, and it's, they sort of like it. I wouldn't necessarily make a distinction except that it becomes a very personal thing and they become quite tricky because well not tricky but i think things become music by context by contextualizing as music if i go and listen to the birds in the woods they can be it can be music or it can be just the birds in the woods 
there has been a lot of you know people who know about birds maybe they're not singing beautiful things to each other they might be singing if you come near me i'm going to do you in because i've got my eggs here so it could be that but the, i think things become that by us contextualizing them as such so i think some of the time the arguments around that that have existed they sort of fall over quite a lot of the time the very famous orchestral piece, you know, The Pines of Rome by Respighi from the 1920s, I think it is, I can't remember exactly, that has a recording of a nightingale in it. It's quite interesting because for some people, and a recording of a nightingale isn't music, which is fair enough, it's a recording of a nightingale, but if I play it in a concert hall it be, with an orchestra playing at the same time, that it becomes part of the music then by its contextualization, I think. I, I try to divert a lot of those arguments, particularly with students and things these days, because I think sometimes the thing I have observed that some of the time we, the word music and songs have become interchangeable. And as a sort of aging person, I find that irritating because not all music is songs. Right. Song, I would imagine, is a subset of music. Yeah. But, but actually that, People tend to use it interchangeably because when the iPod was invented, that's what was decided you called each little bit of stuff. Right, that was the atomized unit, yeah. Yeah, so it becomes a song, you know, so it's it's kind of fine. It's not worth having a fight. It's not worth a battle. But I think it's interesting how an awareness of sound and music and those things, they do overlap and they're interchangeable, I think. And I'm quite interested in how we have traditions of sound making that aren't music. Later on this evening, my son will walk up the road in the village I live in and go to bell ringing practice. And people who do change bell ringing in the English sort of tradition of doing it, it's definitely to them, it's definitely not music. But when I hear the, them practicing the bell ringing, it has all the attributes that I associate with music. You know, it's got rhythm and melody and time. It's got, it's got more of the conventional attributes of music than a lot of the music I might make or listen to. I don't know if it was Frank Zappa or or John Cage. Some, some quote I read said that what distinguishes music is is the element of time. Sound sort of demarcated with a meter. Yeah, you know, I, 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 the thing that's refreshing about hearing you speak about it is that it's intellectual, but it's not overly academic for you. Like you don't, you're not, you're not hung up on this. I'm not hung up on it. I know people who are, and they write books. You know, if you're an academic and you write, you write a book that's published, and then you, you think, oh, maybe not. It's a, <laughs> it's it's a pretty that's pretty difficult path to to tread these days. So I'm not hung up on it. I do find it interesting, and I'm always interested in people's takes on it and working with it like I work with a lot of musicians from different cultures who have quite a different so one of my major collaborations for the last six seven years has been with an Indian singer from southern India and actually there's a very different take on a lot of these things and that's kind of refreshing as well that's like it's it's a good challenge because you, you sort of get set in your ways a bit about thinking how things happen so actually working with people from very different cultural backgrounds is fascinating, really. But I think you just have to have, be open to it. It's like a lot of things in life. People are really certain of things. Uh, are the ones you have to be aware, a bit wary of, I think, you know? Yeah, that some of my favorite thinkers share that 
sense of the um the the people who are most certain in their opinion or their belief or what have you are the are the ones to be afraid of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, um I wanted to ask you a little bit about the roles you have to play in your work, meaning clearly there are artistic visions and artistic actions that have to be taken, but it also seems that there's a technician and engineering role that in order for you to be self-sufficient and success, like you, you, you have to have facility with tools beyond just a musical instrument. I would, I would think, and I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about what, what's that spectrum of skills you have to have to do what you do. Yeah. The year I finished my music degree, they, they bought a computer. So I never had computers for my whole education. So I used to do a lot of work as a student in the studio with tape and, razor blades and yeah uh, you know pencils so, on reels and <laughs> yeah all of that stuff you know and i was i was i was enjoyed the physicality of that and it's nice to see a lot of that coming back actually in people's practice you know out of necessity i've sort of acquired various sort of skills to do with those things and out of working with people who really know also it's like working with people who know about it i've learned how to make reasonable recordings and how to learn audio editing and things. I realized a long time ago that I was doing a lot, and I still do a lot of projects in education with children and teenage students. And I realized that when CDs came around, that if I bought a, when they became affordable, a CD burner standalone, I could go into a school and I could write some music with people. We could improvise and I could record it using a mini disc machine or something at the end of the day, I could burn a CD and give them a CD of their work, which at the time was a hugely high-status object, whereas now I hang them on my beans to scare the birds off, you know. That's right. <laughs> I think some of the time it's like acquiring those skills on the way and also being interested enough in them. I've met and worked with people who are fantastic engineers. And actually that came for me. When I was a student doing a degree, actually, I worked in the college I was at, had a big summer school of music. People would come to study. And I stayed on in the summer to work to help the technician out in the studio. And I ended up with this big Revox reel-to-reel tape recorder you know, mm-hmm. and microphones recording concerts and things. And then I worked as a student with the composer Richard Rodney Bennett, who's very famous for writing a lot of film music and things and being very accomplished on film composition projects. So I, I worked as a technician for him. And he was one of the first people I'd worked with where it was a group of um, quite advanced composers in their 20s and 30s who were writing music for a the cabinet of Dr Caligari, the famous black and white film. And they'd all been given a different bit to write the music for. And they'd written the music and they'd recorded it onto reel-to-reel tape. And and I spent a whole day with him editing this. And that was an inspiration because some of the composers had timed it wrong. So they hadn't written enough music. Mm. So we'd go back to the score and he'd go, where do you think the repeat would go? But people pay a foot. I was being paid as well to, to work as a, as a lackey student. And we'd find a bit and then we'd find it on the tape and we'd copy it and we'd copy it and we'd made up this master tape on reel-to-reel tape. 
that went with the film. And then when they showed the film, actually, I was sitting there on the very speed of the tape recorder to try and get it to sync because there was no computer or synchronization or anything. And that was really inspiring me to think, oh, look, here's somebody who not only knows how to write the music and match it to the pictures and teach people about that, but is technically competent enough not to need somebody else to do it. It's also if you've got no money and you want to do it and someone can lend you something, you sort of learn how to play in a way. Yeah. So it was always the advice, you know, when I meet – Teenagers, I used to play in bands a lot when I was younger, you know, occasionally do a bit. And it's actually, you need to be in a band that isn't really very good. You need to get better. But actually, you need to be able to sort of take the mixing desk out of your house, wrap it in a sleeping bag, put it in the back of the car, drive it to the venue, plug it all in and discover that it's not all working properly and how to, those kind of problem-solving skills. I quite enjoy, in a sense, so I quite enjoy meeting people who are technicians and working with them so for me that sort of skill set of doing that so now I do a lot of editing and producing things myself but it's like knowing where your skill ends as well there are people I know who are phenomenal mastering engineers and things because that's what they do and they have a, a much deeper understanding of it than I do some of the time it's like about Enjoying the company of people who know those kind of things, I think, as well. I have a couple of friends who do, who I haven't seen for a while, but they do a lot of sound for contemporary music things. And they did the sound for the Stockhausen Opera, the fame, one with the famous helicopter string quartet, where there's a string quartet in helicopters circling <laughs> the concert hall, and the sound is being beamed into the concert hall. And I'm thinking, so... Dave and Ian know how to put a string quartet in it in helicopters and fly it round in circles round a concert hall and stream the music into the concert hall without getting stressed. Well, they're the kind of people I want to learn from, you know, so that when I'm setting up for a gig in a pub or something or in a concert or setting up an installation in an art gallery or something, actually, not that I phone them up all the time, but actually it's it, it, it's like learning from those people people actually as well i see yeah i mean if they could manage air traffic control and uh that's literally life and death <laughs> yeah and i think it is I, I think doing the things a lot of the things i do are quite hybridized so i'm doing some performances at the end of this week where i'm actually going to be in an art gallery in leicester and the other two performers are remote via the connected via the internet and there's a sense of embracing the peril of it because it's a trio that is got started happening during the covid lockdown and it's it was a support group for me and a couple of mates really sure and we'd sort of meet and we'd have a chat and actually some of the time you have to i always think embrace the chaos being one of my favorite sort of phrases in a way it's like this is the nature of some of the time that's the nature of doing things that they're fragile as with a a lot of things it's you have just have to put a lot of time into it i think and be interested and fascinated enough in and why does it sound slightly different when i do that compared to that and knowing the point where you think i don't know enough about that i'm gonna find someone who does and pay them or nowadays trying to well not no, no trying to not necessarily bartering everything but you know it's a good way to work. Since keeping bees, everybody wants honey. <laughs> <laughs> you have an untapped currency oh, supply. Dear. 
audio <laughs> mastering in exchange for a jar of honey. You know, I like it's, it. It's not too bad. Yeah. I did want to ask you, is there anything current that you want to leave us with that you're working on or that you're about to premiere a debut or something we should be looking out for on the near term? It's been very interesting because starting to emerge into doing live things again, it's taken, it's taken quite a long time. And before COVID, I was traveling a lot. I was in India just before playing at a festival in Rajasthan in Jaipur, which was stunning with Supriya Nagarajan, the Indian singer I work with. But we've got some gigs actually coming up in London, one in a, a project called Robin's Rocket that's in a, a place called Cafe Otto that's a really interesting venue in London for experimental contemporary music with Patrick Shaw Iverson. So it's a trio between me playing electronics and flugelhorn, like big trumpet, and Supriya Nagarajan, who's a Carnatic singer, and Patrick Shaw Iverson, who lives in Oslo but plays the contrabass flute which is enormous. And I've never actually been in the same room as one. I think that's on the, that is on the 17th of November in London. Oh, I may be in London then. I might uh, let you know. Oh, let me know. And please do come along. But the night before that, we're actually doing a performance of the, of this lullaby Sonic Cradle project we've yes. been touring. We did a performance of it at the WOMAD festival in the summer, underneath Luke Jerram, the artist Luke Jerram made this Museum of the Moon, which is a giant inflatable moon that's been touring all sorts of different spaces for the last few years. And actually, he's made another one called Gaia, which is the Earth, and we're performing an hour and a bit of Indian lullabies with, again, me playing electronic sounds and nighttime recordings and a bit of flugelhorn, but also with a harpist this time in Grimsby, Minster, which is where the project I was doing with the oil refinery took place. So it's nice to try and join those two things together. So that's coming up, which is very exciting. And then my village band will be playing random raucous Christmas carols outside various pubs and things around <laughs> the villages <laughs> of where I live, which is the most enjoyable Thing in a way, in terms of being a musician in a community, it's like it's a great fun way to be involved in it in a very low stress way. So, with people, with actual people, oh, with actual people, yes, actual people singing Christmas carols and then going in the pub, lots of mince pies and that kind of work. It, not work, it's like playing music, right? Yeah, and that's part of you know, it's part of balancing trying to balance life in a sense. Well, thank you for making time to do this. I really appreciate it. I'm glad that the power stayed on long enough. Yeah, it's remarkable. Yes, yes. <laughs> that was good. You know, I was trying to think, hmm, I've been developing various solar-powered projects, but the, the, they don't extend to running the internet yet. Work, work <laughs> I can get what, greenhouses to be automatically watered and things like that, but not, not yet the internet. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Duncan Chapman, and thank you, Spotlight On alum Sonia Stevenson, for connecting us. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson, and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, 
please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.